this morning. We're taking the topic of evangelism. The title is called The Unlikely Disciple because we're talking about Matthew, who is a very, very unlikely convert who came to Christ. When we talk about evangelism, I think the question comes up in our minds, how are we doing evangelistically? How are you doing? How are you doing in terms of your witness, your personal witness, and then your ability or your boldness to actually open your mouth and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. It's a little bit scarier these days than ever before to say, I'm one of those. Uh, It's not just uh, the norm anymore to be a Christian as an American. And so here we are in our country and our world And our country and our city and our neighborhoods and our workplace, they need Jesus, and we've got the answer. So it's seeing Jesus uh, giving us opportunities to evangelize. That would be a major principle to be thinking about as we go through this text. Seeing how Jesus opens the door for us naturally, providentially, in circumstances, within the context of natural, normal relationships that he brings in your path where you talk about Jesus to them. That's, that's what this text is all about. That's what we're going to look at. This is what Jesus did. I was asked a question recently in some forum where they asked, what, what programs for evangelism do you promote at your church? And I said, well... Uh, Nothing really. I, I don't know. I, I've been part of programs. I've been on missions trips, short-term missions trips. We do that. We send missions teams out from the school. We, um, we have settings, but we don't typically have the common, commonly known evangelistic rallies. We don't do door-to-door evangelism um, currently. We haven't in my 12 years here, uh, but we do evangelize because we do see people baptized. We do see people come. We do see people awaken to to spiritual life by just being around us as a church or being around you as church members or church participants who are out there. People come to Christ through those relationships and those encounters, through those divine appointments, through those opportunities where someone's life is falling apart and you meet that need and it spawns a conversation of why you are the way that you are, right? And a lot of times people can criticize that. They say, I need a script, I need a curriculum, I need a way to to stage my evangelistic witness. And I'm not saying that's always wrong or bad. I've been a part of all different kinds of mission outreach things. I've preached open air style. I've preached on street corners in New York City and done different weird things. And and God blesses that. He, He uses the ministry of evangelism when you set it up that way. But most often what you see in scripture are divine appointments, whether it was the prophets meeting people or the apostles or Jesus, as we're going to see, just church life happening in here and then out there and people come to Christ. He just draws people through that. Amazingly, I heard one time someone say um, on the inside here, why don't we do outreach? Where are outreach programs? And in the background, as this person was making that comment, I heard all the hustle and bustle and noise of 500 K through 12 students represented from 80 different churches uh, from our city that come here every week. So you have like 500 with staff and volunteers and people like a thousand people teaming through this building all week long. You have a volleyball tournament all week long, you know, car alarms going off and people all around. And through that 
chaos that controlled, managed, very well-organized chaos. You have conversations and relationships that take place and people who've signed professions of faith, I believe, but their children, their first graders or their kindergartners, and they're discovering whether they truly do believe. And then God is bringing life through a teacher and a witness or a relationship or this happens and that, and people come to church and get involved. But we don't do outreach here. No, that's a totally, that's a misnomer. We just do outreach in the way that we thought up a good way to do outreach, which is through having a Christian school. Um, Not every church has to do it that way. And evangelism, my point is this. However you're reaching out or finding yourself meeting a need in your community, evangelism is not a program. Evangelism is a message. The, The evangel is the gospel. That's what evangel means, gospel. To be an evangelical is to be part of a gospel witness, a gospel community. Evangelizing, according to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission is to go, which is a perfect passive, which means as you are going, as you're moving out into the world in the highways and byways, you're just giving the message and you're, you're making learners, people who want the word of God. It's not enough to read the Bible. It's Something, and this is R.C. Sproul, he, he always used to say this, don't just read the Bible, you've got to study the Bible. So we want to make studiers. We want to make Bible studiers. We want to make people who want to dig in and know Jesus personally and follow him through learning from him, hearing him, hearing from him in the word of God. And if you aren't plugged into this way of life, it's really no way of life at all as a Christian. You're missing out. And so it's dialing in and saying, Lord, where, where is my witness? I had a couple plane ride experiences. It's funny, evangelism and flying just go hand in hand usually. And I was sitting next to this one person, and uh, it, was, it was hilarious because there's awkwardness, right, where you go, am I going to talk to that person or not? You know, we've got masks on and, you know, what's happening? And, and so by the end of the plane ride as we're descending uh, we had established a rapport and knew all kinds of people in common, and her husband had worked recently. She and her husband had recently worked for my brother-in-law, which was just hilarious. So it's like you never know who you're sitting to, sitting next to. Then another plane ride, same thing with this other um, man who, you know, just a great, we had a great time. And he wasn't in church, um, but he knew as much scripture as I did. So we're just spouting scripture to each other. He said, I was going to fall asleep and, you know, but we're talking about our father instead. So, you know, we're hugging in the airport saying goodbye, just wild stuff. You just never know what God is doing, but you, but you need to know he's doing something all the time and you have to be open and alert to see what he's doing and have these conversations. Are we interested? Let's see how Jesus did it. Do you want to find out? Let's look. Matthew chapter nine, look at verse, verses nine through 13. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This is the story of Jesus evangelizing. Jesus has just been in a setting with in Peter's house where he raised the paralytic um, physically, and the paralytic became whole immediately, instantaneously walked out. But he had pronounced before that that this man's sins were forgiven. And so he's doing ministry. There are scribes there. There are religious leaders there. They're probably with a group that's more like the middle or upper class, people who are attending synagogue and people are showing up and are interested now to hear Jesus. What does he have to add to what we're learning about God? Who is Jesus? That's what this curious crowd is asking. And the Pharisees are kind of turned off by the fact that Jesus is saying he can forgive sins, and that's the climate there on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. This is Capernaum. This is Jesus' base of operations. So out of that setting, Jesus walks out into the road, and it's a road that's a thoroughfare that's going up along the side of the Sea of Galilee up towards Damascus, and he goes to a uniquely placed tax booth. This is a toll booth operation where Matthew is large and in charge. Matthew's seated there. It says he's sitting. He's the government official. He's the proxy for Rome, the representative who's there. His name is Levi, also Matthew, and him being named Levi, meaning he's, his given name is from the history of, of Israel, because Rachel had a son and his name was Levi. Jacob had that son, Levi. And so Matthew is named Levi. And he's sitting there as a Jew who has defected from the faith, defected from the religion of Israel. He's, instead of representing Israel, he's representing Rome. Herod Antipas would have been over that region. Antipas, whether he was genuinely Roman or not, was there to... to, bilk the system and and rob from the Israelites to give to Rome. Taxes back then were high charges for goods and services, and the taxation went all the way down to the teenage age of the children. And so you had young adults who were being taxed and all the way through, and there was no way up to Damascus but through this toll booth. And you have sort of a, a representative of all of that in Matthew, who's the the little boss. You got the big boss that's Rome, and he's the little boss. He's the mafioso sitting there with his henchmen taking money. And there's no media to give any accountability to this racketeering system. So anybody could charge anything because nobody's keeping anybody accountable. Matthew knows what he needs to give to Antipas to give to Rome, but he also knows what he believes he needs to give to himself. And so Matthew, no doubt, is on the take, much like Zacchaeus, who ended up paying back four times what he had stolen. Matthew is there, likewise, on the take. And this is who Jesus decides to pass by and to call to himself. If you're taking notes, we have an outline for you today, I believe. And it's Jesus' how-to method for outreach. I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I think that, again... Outreach is just living the Christian life and giving out the word of God. But the unlikely disciple is Matthew, who's also named um, Levi. By the way, you have double names in scripture, Simon, Peter, John, Mark. This is Levi, who's also Matthew. Matthew means to be, um, to be um, the gift of God. And so he's going to be given the greatest gift you could receive in earth. This how-to method of outreach 
is what Jesus is doing. Point one is Jesus is passing by someone. Verse nine, he's passing by someone. That's what he's doing. That's the flow of God's providence in Jesus' life. Did Jesus know that he was going to see Matthew? Not sure. Did Jesus know that Matthew was ready to repent? It doesn't say. Jesus is able to exercise his attribute of omniscience or being all-knowing. He laid that aside in his humanity, but could also access it. That's the mystery of the God-man. And so I'm not sure if he was looking into Matthew's heart and realized he was going to repent or not. All I know is this was a very, very bold thing for Jesus to do. And you say, why? It's because Matthew worked for the government that was antagonistic towards the Jews, was oppressive to the Jews, did not like Jewish religion, was trying to keep control over them by taxation. And so this is the situation that Jesus just walks into freely and calls out Matthew to leave. He, in essence, is poking the proverbial bear of the government IRS. Imagine that. Imagine doing that today in our world, walking boldly into the office of a politician, a representative, someone who by their affiliation would be antagonistic to Christ, someone who would be against the gospel, against the Bible, against the church. Um, I I know it would be a hard stretch to think that that could be our situation these days, right? Right. But this is what Jesus, I'm being facetious, this is what Jesus is walking into. This is what he is boldly encountering, going right up to the government official, right up to that person who's sitting right there and saying, follow me. What he's saying by that is, leave this and come to this. Stop that. Leave your office. If you stand up right now, and the body language is he stands up, he rises up. For you to stand up and leave means that the door is closing behind you and you're not now going to be a government official anymore. This is different than when he called Peter, James, and John. They dropped their nets, which is likewise body language that's symbolic of dropping your profession. I'm leaving fishing to fish men, right? I'm becoming a fisher of men. For Matthew, he's going to stand up and, he's, and the door is going to close behind him and he's going to be a follower of Jesus, someone who is a known radical, someone who is, who, is, who is on the watch list for the government and he's going to follow that person and become his disciple. What does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus? It has been said that it was a peripatetic ministry. What the peripateto means is to walk. It's a walking ministry. You're going to stand up and you're going to walk behind Jesus and learn from him as he teaches. Much like the Aristotelian method where Aristotle had his disciples. Jesus, in the same vein, is calling people to physically follow him. To physically align with Jesus. To physically be known as someone who is a learner of Jesus. Being a a follower of Christ is not a covert mission. It's not behind the scenes. It's not under wraps. It's not in the shadows. It's out loud and it's on display. And that's what Jesus is calling Matthew to do. What does he do in this situation? It says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said, follow me. And he rose and he followed him immediately. Perhaps Matthew was guilt-ridden. We don't know. The son of Alphaeus, Levi, He'd been on the take and something was happening in his heart 
And Jesus struck a nerve in that moment and said, follow me. And he gets up and does that very thing, leaving his profession, aligning with Christ, being different than the world. This is what Matthew is all about. His name means greatest gift. And he was given that very thing at this moment. To be in a tax booth and to be sitting there in the capacity that Matthew was in would be him actually flaunting his wealth. Typically, an official would be in the background and let the servants do things in the foreground while he's sitting right at the table and he's leading with the chin. But in that moment, when Jesus says follow, he's humbled, he's struck to his heart, and he says, I'm going to follow. I think a lot of times we don't, we underestimate what God is up to. We underestimate the fact that our conversation with someone could be the difference in that person's eternal destiny. Now, I'm a believer. I'm a reformed evangelical. I might even be called a Calvinist. I don't even know. But I would just say that, that I believe God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses men, women, boys, and girls to preach, to say things. And through that instrumentality, God gives grace. It's like lightning strikes in the heart. A person comes to life and they believe. Do you want to be part of that mission? I hope you do, because that's where it's fun. That's the enjoyment of the Christian life. This man was sitting in a unique spot at a tax booth and he suddenly was following Jesus, following Jesus, coming under Jesus' authority. Jesus didn't care whether this man was a politician. He didn't care what profession or background this was in. Jesus didn't care that he would come under threat for associating in this moment with this tax collector. Jesus wasn't afraid of Rome. He wasn't afraid of government. And watch this. He also was not afraid of his peers, his Jewish peers who are watching him engage this person who would not even have been allowed to come into the synagogue to worship. To be a tax collector would be aligned with the sinners, the dregs of humanity, the dregs of society, those who were not welcome, the harlots, the, the street people of, of that society. That's what a tax gatherer was, um, was given for their, um, for their ways and means in life. That's how, they were, that's how they were known. And Jesus was aligning himself with Matthew. And by doing so, he was risking his relationships with even his friends and disciples. Mark's gospel says that the crowd had followed him, probably followed him out of Peter's house and was with him in that moment. And Jesus is saying, oh, I know we've got our crowd here. Let's invite Matthew to be part of it. Let's invite Levi, the son of Alphaeus, this person who's given you all kinds of hardship. Let's just you know, let's just up in this thing right now. And Matthew comes and he's part of it. And that's amazing. That's the difference in the Christian life where we, we don't need just certain settings. We don't need a evangelistic program. We don't need a script. We don't need um, an event. I mean, those things can all be great and can incorporate opportunities for evangelism, but we don't need those things. We just need to be bold. We need to follow through and do what Jesus told us to do. Jesus called the three, he called the 12, he called the 70, he called the 120. Um, he sent the Holy Spirit down, the church took off, churches advanced and things happened. All of this is an amazing blueprint and template historically for what God did. But even that isn't the exact divinely prescribed strategy for how we're supposed to do um, evangelism and outreach. 
It's preach the gospel. Preach the gospel in your context. And there's a variety of ways to do it, a variety of opportunities to talk to people in, in a manifold way that is strategic. We just have to be obedient. We have to do it. The key point of this text is to see that Matthew must have realized he was sick, he needed a physician, and he was made well. I want you to see that point as we transition to this, the next point, the next point, which I have to find even to remember. I've been off my notes a long time, but um, Jesus, what is my next point? Okay, reclining at your home with anyone. That's verse 10. He's passing by someone and he's reclining at his home with anyone. Verse 10 is where Matthew is inviting his old friends to come to his house. If you cross-reference Mark's account in in Mark chapter 2, Luke's account as well, this is Matthew's house. This is Levi's home. We've moved from Peter's home where you have religious people there and you have basically church folk there to now a different home setting where you have a bunch of tax collectors. These are Matthew's friends. And then you you have sinners, those who are outcasts. Because Matthew had been called to the group, now everybody else goes, well, we can join the group too. That's what just happened. Jesus is saying, I'm having an inquirer's Bible study at Matthew's house. If you also believe that you're sick, if you also believe that you're needy, if you also believe that you need help, come to this room, come to this setting and let's recline, look at verse 10, recline at table. Let's sit on our elbows, talk face to face as tax collectors and sinners are coming. Let's recline there and the disciples are included in this setting. It's amazing. It's amazing to think about. These tax collectors would be people who would be leaving their money situations. They'd be risking what they had lived for And they had forsaken the love of money, which can be the root of all evils, craving for money. First Timothy chapter six, uh, verse 10 says, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Well, what's happening here is in the providence of God, Jesus is answering their need to see that he is all that they need. They don't need money. They need Jesus. It's amazing. Just a Bank on one um, last point in, in regards to the providence of God, where Jesus just happened to run into Matthew and this happened. I was leaving Burbank Airport, and, and the way that Alaska Airlines flew me to Atlanta to go to my second stop is from Burbank, I went up to Seattle. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? And then over down to Texas and then hopping into Atlanta. That was an exciting flight for me. I don't care about stuff like that. I just put my head down and sleep or read and then come in and out of consciousness and write sermons. But, um, but I went up to, I was in Burbank and I got a text from an old friend that I went to college with and then in, in Virginia. And then we also went to seminary together and we were old friends. He had um, since gone into, um, he'd gotten his PhD, served in a couple conservative schools, and then um, straight into some more liberalism. But it was, it was interesting because he texted me, and he was in O'Hare Airport, and he said, are you, are you right here? Is that you? And my wife was next to me, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, tell him it's you, you know. And so, so I'm like, yeah, that's me, you know, but no, not really. And then, then the next time the texting worked was up at, in SeaTac. So I'm sitting there waiting for my flight 
And it turned out, he said, yeah, I thought that was you because we flew over together on the same plane to Seattle. So he's like two terminals over. And then I run over to him and we talk face to face. Well, how does that happen, right? Well, it's just part of the providence of God. And there were probably, and here's the key thing, and I'm not going to get into the details of our conversation, but in light of the conference I was going to, the G3 conference, which is gospel, grace, and glory, and basically an evangelical witness of 6,500 people saying we're standing in the face of a world that's gone crazy out here, and we're going to be sane in here. That's what it's about. It's a conservative Christian conference in Atlanta every year, and it's grown exponentially. And it's standing for things, you know, it's talking about creationism versus evolution. It's talking about ethnicity rather than racism. It's talking about, you know, um, CRT and different things that are happening that we need to be clear on the gospel regarding who we are, what is our identity. And every sermon was just a basic gospel sermon. It's like, I mean, the the simple truth of the word of God is what you have to believe and answer things that are all crazy and complex out there. Why don't even get into that with my friend? Because where he is in his his walk was um, suspect. And I didn't want to harden his heart, but I did allude to it. And we did have a conversation. It was powerful. That's how God is working. Well, God in this text... Um, is is drawing people to this home where some water and then some sow, some water and some um, reap the harvest as people are one to Jesus. Matthew had been one in, in, in a way where he didn't even say anything and he was in speechless surprise, met with unexpected grace. It's amazing. Well, verse 10, reclining at your home with anyone. This is the bad crowd. This is the crowd that was, was not welcome to the synagogue. They're reclining at the table. And Jesus is reaching out to them, taking a normal face-to-face eating posture. Let me ask this question. Was Jesus at any one point in doing so compromised? Was his holiness compromised? Was he wrong to do this? Is associating with worldly people wrong? No, no. The Bible does say not to love the world, neither the things of the world. The Bible calls in 2 Corinthians for a separation from the world. The Bible in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says not to walk, sit, or stand in the company of sinners or scoffers. We are supposed to be holy as God is holy. But that version of separation is on a spiritual level on a heart level and a doctrinal level, not a physical space level. Everything comes down to motive. And I think the motivation of Jesus, I know it was pure because it's Jesus, but let's talk about the motivation of those who were coming. Those who were coming were coming to hear from Jesus for help. And when you reach people for Christ and you talk to people, you do not have to compromise your Christian morality, your Christian sensitivities, your Christian conscience. You should never compromise the word of God, never dumb it down, never water it down, never change its message. But at the same time, as you guard the gospel and you guard your heart, you can enter into um, arenas and settings where you're giving the gospel out to people. And you're separated from them spiritually until they come to Christ, but you're nevertheless giving the gospel so that they will come to Christ. And you need to know that is Christian spirituality. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's what it's all about. Don't rationalize not talking to people in the name of some sort of sanctified separation. 
Did you hear what I said? Don't rationalize away giving the gospel to people. Don't rationalize away the opportunity to minister Christ to somebody. In the name of Christ, don't rationalize that away because you're saying, I need to be holy and separate. You can guard your heart. You can guard your gospel and, and, and meet people where they are and talk to them. It's amazing. People rationalize it the other way, though. They'll excuse themselves and say, I want to become all things to all men that I might win some. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. And they can misconstrue that to say, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. I'm going to be worldly. I'll have that beer with that person or I'll, I'll watch Netflix and be hip and know this next cool thing so I can build a bridge and have a conversation with them. And then I'm giving the gospel. Well, a lot of times people are compromised in the things that they're willing to do to harden their own hearts, to, to flaunt their own liberties, to act as a st- stronger brother with a weaker brother or act you know, like a weaker brother with a stronger brother in a way that's not really productive at all and what first corinthians 9 verse 22 we don't have time to unpack that but the context of that is paul being willing to defer his rights at every turn so that he can remove stumbling blocks remove obstacles and and give himself ramp and runway with the word of god into people's hearts Paul would act like a stronger brother in some cases and a weaker brother in some cases and defer his rights whenever he could so that he could talk the gospel with people. He'd remove obstacles, not try to have his cake and eat it too in the name of some worldly bridge that you're trying to secure in a conversation. That's a very wobbly bridge, by the way. It also is a a place where suddenly you can kind of lose your identity and your, your Christian boldness and your witness if you're compromising your own conscience in the name of trying to reach someone. That is not what we're talking about. It's all about people who are coming, who are sick, in need of a physician, And Christ is saying, I'm that physician. And we, as those who have the treasure of the gospel in clay pots filled with the Holy Spirit, we come in the name of Christ as those physicians in this world for sick and needy people. And we want to meet their needs on the mission. They were coming to Jesus. I remember when I was a newly converted Christian. I think that this was my senior year of high school. I think I had just become a Christian. I'm sure of it because I had just given my testimony to the youth group. So it would have been October and I gave my testimony to about this size crowd youth group. And I was saying, I've changed. I'm not no longer, I'm no longer who I used to be. I'm now following Christ. And I was 17. So I was like fully on the cusp of, you know, this new phase of adulthood to say, this is my solemn commitment to follow Christ. And I'm not going back. And people knew me as a rabble rouser and part of a crowd that was a little bit disruptive within the youth group and hypocritical. People knew that. And so for me to take that kind of stand was significant in that moment. And so we roll forward into the December time frame. My brother was back from college and he had been part of the sowing and reaping in my life with um, sowing the gospel in my heart and had witnessed to me. And he was trying to be a mentor to me and say, why don't we have a pray in the new year party where you can gather Christian friends together and we'll, we'll have them at our house and we'll pray in the new year. It's 1990. It's, you know, this is the new year and it's time to, to solemnize this moment in Christian friendship. We're going to watch Dick Clark or whoever in the world it was on TV. The ball will, the proverbial ball will drop. We'll cut the TV off and have this sanctified moment of praying around the room. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. That'll be fun. And so I start to invite people from the youth group and, you know, people are coming. Well, word gets out that I'm having this New Year's party, okay? 
And, you know, I'm a new believer. And so, you know, this one guy comes knocking and he calls me. He says, hey, I hear you're having a New Year's party. I want to come. Now, this is one of my good buddies. And uh, he was also one of the rabble rousers in the youth group. And he's like, I want to come. And I even got a little bit alerted by that. Like, this might not be a good idea. He's going to quench the spirit. He's going to change the direction of the meeting. Not sure I want him to come. And we had known each other since junior high and high school. So this was a long relationship. And... And then he said, Jeff, I heard your testimony at youth group, and I want to come. And I knew he wasn't yet a believer, but I said, you need to come. So he was coming, and, I, and I'm coming down from my room over the garage steps, you know, down into the kitchen area. There's my brother. There are my parents. And I said, oh, by the way, such and such is coming. My brother was like, well, that was a mistake. That's horrible. This place, you know, he's older brothering all over the place. And, you know, the whole meeting is ruined. What have you done? And I said, no, no, I think it's a right call. So we, we, we gather around. The New Year moment happens. We cut the TV off. We start the prayer circle, and it's one after the other. Boom, boom, prayer, prayer, New Year. Lord, give us this, that. And it comes to my good friend in the corner of my den, my living room. I can see it in my mind's eye right now. Everything goes silent for like a minute. It's awkward. All you begin to hear is sobs. This, <gasps> And he repents in that moment. And believes on the Lord Jesus and confesses his sins publicly in that prayer and believes. We have a picture commemorating that moment, standing right there, shaking hands, because the Spirit of God opened his heart in that moment, in that place. He's a pastor today uh, down in Florida. I mean, it, you never know what God is going to do. You don't. So it's not compromise the moment. It's not build a worldly bridge to cross over so that you can reach people for Christ. It's not have your cake and eat it too as some sort of hipster cult where you're trying to reach people with the world's means and methods. It's being guarded in your heart in terms of your own Christian spirituality, your own convictions, guarded in your heart in terms of the word of God and your theology, and then opening your heart to the lost, to the needy, to give them the word of God. Jesus always had the high ground in the moment without any compromise, without any lessening of his holiness. So you pass by someone, you're, you're opening yourself up to anyone, and then you're answering questions from everyone. I say everyone because verse 11 is uh, where Jesus is going to answer questions to the Pharisees. And a lot of times, evangelism is answering questions. I just want to say that up front. I have wondered, I used to scour the New Testament for evangelistic strategies. How do you witness? How do you build the bridge? How do you get into the conversation with someone? A lot of times it's just you being you as a Christian that begs the question. And when the question comes, you answer the question. Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned as it were with salt, that you may be able to answer everyone's question. 1 Peter chapter 3, I think verse 15, make a defense for the gospel. Make an apologia for the gospel. You're defending the faith. You're contending for the faith. You're open to answer people's questions. And as you talk about Christ, it's salty. And it makes people in their mouth go, I've never heard that before. I want to hear what is going on behind that question or that thought or that position. Or that conviction, why do you do what you do? And those kinds of moments are where you answer the question. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1, 
wives living with their unsaved husband, and you know, they live without even saying a word. They live the Christian life, and it begs the questions that are raised. We're called salt and light. We're called to be a city on a hill. This is, this is Jesus' moment to model what it means to answer the question. So you have in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? They must have seen this crowded house. They saw the party. They saw what was going on. And they cowardly go to the disciples, not Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. We're going to go to the disciples who were there at the party. They're pulling them aside and making a scene probably because Jesus hears what they're doing. And he's, they're trying to divide and conquer, get the disciples against Jesus and say, I'm calling foul. You, if you associate with these harlots, with these drug users, with these devil worshipers, with these dregs of society, with these outcasts, and with these tax collectors, these government workers. Forgive me if you work for the government. These government workers, you know. How could you do this? And, and Jesus is dirty because of this. He's sitting with them. He's going to be influenced by them. And so are you going to go with Jesus on this? That's what they're questioning here. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Obvious sarcasm here. You Pharisees think you're well. You think you're just fine. But they don't, and they get Jesus. You're hardening up, and they're softening. You're dark, and they are light. And so Jesus is calling them out. You know people who are afraid of going to doctors. Um, You yourself might be one of them. You might be afraid of the doctor's bill that comes. Um, But it's important to be aware that if you have a physical need to go to a physician, a good physician will be honest. They don't always know what's wrong with the patient. They're oftentimes um, falsifying things or ruling things out through tests and measures to diagnose correctly this, the best possible setting to um, give medicine, to um, alleviate pain, or to set the conditions for someone's body to heal itself. That's typically what I have found in doctors' discussions and arenas. They're, they're doing their best to practice medicine and to see good outcomes happen for health's sake. But if someone is hardened up to being diagnosed. If someone is resistant and believes they are just fine when they aren't, they can be in a very seriously bad condition suddenly altogether. The Christian science religion, uh, false religion, is built on that premise that they are anti-medicine, anti-doctor. I've heard of the story, the sad story of Val Kilmer who had a throat tumor and resisted that, was praying for that to leave and trying to use his Christian science religion and ultimately, you know, got worse and worse until he did seek health and attention. The Pharisees in that moment are playing the cynical judge. They're criticizing Jesus. They're resisting him. They're on the proverbial Twitter feed where they're putting in the comment section, how could this guy be doing what he's doing? They're trying to give um, Jesus bad press and Jesus is going to answer them. He says, those who are well have no need of a 
physician, but those who are sick. Don't live in denial of your situation. Don't be living in this facade of religion where you believe your good is outweighing your bad. You think you're bulletproof, but you're really not. You think you're righteous, but you're really a hardened sinner. You're looking down on people like the Pharisee and the tax collector who says, this person isn't doing all the good things that I'm doing. I tithe, I give, I pray. And the sinner in that moment in Luke chapter 6, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14 is saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That one went away justified. Jesus is saying to be sick in this case is actually to be in the best possible situation to hear from Jesus. So important. It's so important to not compromise, but to at the same time, Be bold and be willing to answer questions as they come up. Look what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn. This was a rabbinic phrase to say, go and learn the deeper meaning of the truth. Now, the truth is clear within itself. It's perspicuous. It's inherently clear. But a lot of times people will understand it on a superficial level and they won't understand the meaning that's there. The whole um, sacrificial system, the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament was for what purpose? Just to do right and obey? Is that what it was? I sin, so I do this, bump, bump. No, it was to symbolize a necessary sacrifice for sin. It was... Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. You've sinned against holy God and it requires a payment to be paid. And that sacrificial payment is symbolized in a lamb dying and being slain. And that was actually something that was going on when Jesus said that. But all of that was a a type or a picture of the once for all sacrifice that's Christ. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Go to the scripture by faith. Go and learn by faith what all this is really about. It's not the externals. It's not external sacrifices. Like David, when he repented in Psalm 51, you know, at the end of that great psalm, he's saying, sacrifice and meal offering, I would have given it, but you've not required that. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. That's what you desire, right? God wants the soft heart behind the sacrifice. And he's saying to these Pharisees, you're hardening up. You're judging what's going on. You're missing what's happening. You're you're against Christ who's here to help the needy and sick, giving in mercy. Jesus was on a mission of mercy. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire to see the effects of mercy in the heart on display, not your external obedience. That external obedience is repugnant in the Lord. Coming to church with a hard heart is not godly. Coming to church to check a box is not godly. Giving the gospel to check a box is not godly. I mean, that's how sensitive this is. We do everything we do to the glory of God by faith and with a soft heart. And that's what the Lord wants. And by the way, I'm just going to use street language. That's what's most fun about the Christian life. Giving the gospel with a pure heart. Not about yourself, not to fulfill a checkbox, just to enjoy the Lord Jesus by telling people about him. That's when it's enjoyable. Otherwise, you're on a swayed bridge. You're not really knowing who you are. You forget what it's all about. Becomes 
slavish obedience instead of joyful Christian worship. It's about seeing hearts revealed. God desires mercy. He wants to see hearts revealed that have been given mercy, that are now showing mercy and not sacrifice. Incidentally, this is taken directly from Hosea, Hosea chapter 6. This is a quote from Hosea 6, 6, which teaches us that the context of Hosea is one where God was giving covenantal, faithful love to Israel, where Israel was falling away after the sins of immorality, of literal whoredom and following Baals and false worship, a society that was digressive and running from God, similar to a society that we can relate with that is turning everything upside down on its head, living out the Romans 1 um, indictment where people are, you know, natural desires are becoming unnatural, people are hardening their hearts. Sin is commonplace. It's common to see things in movies or in um, commercials that you never thought you would have seen uh, now is becoming more and more commonplace in degradation. And for Israel, God had, had given his covenantal faithfulness to, to them and was loyal to them. And it was pictured in Hosea as the prophet who'd had a straying wife, an apostate wife named Gomer, who'd given herself to whoredom. And God was calling Hosea to to go after his wife, to be faithful, to stick in and not give up. And that's the context for this verse. I desire mercy. I desire that kind of heart, that kind of long-suffering heart where you're not going to give up on your family member. You're going to go all the way, just like God never gave up on you. That's what the gospel is all about. Amen? God never gave up on you. He showed you mercy. He opened your heart. We are those sinners. We are those tax gatherers. Had Jesus not said, come to my house, come to Matthew's house, I'll recline with you. I'll go face to face with you. I'll love you in spite of your sin. And I'll love you now all the way to the marriage supper of the lamb. We would be lost and headed for hell forever. God has loved you and he's loved me because he was on a mission of mercy. Just end with this um, quote from a book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I'm reading it now. It's by Dane Ortland, And um, it's a book that talks about Christ's heart for lost people and for saved people. And the beginning of the book is interesting because he basically says, you know, you Probably as a Christian, everybody here, you know, reading that book would say, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. I believe that. But I also think he's a little bit mad with me all the time for how I really live. (laughs) That's how the book introduces itself. And what the book is trying to dispel is that kind of mindset. Jesus loves you because you're his child. You're like a straying child who doesn't really want to learn to walk and he keeps you by the hands and just he's leading you along and you're that toddler that he loves and he's He's bringing into accountability through his mercy and his grace. Well, one chapter I read um, this past week was Jonathan Edwards, who was the greatest theologian of our, um, our country's history, American history. And in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1740, he wrote a sermon directed to the children of his church entitled To the Children, August 1740. And this is what he said about Jesus. He says, There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is the one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does not 
as much exceed all that which is in the world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness towards their children, but that is no kindness in comparison to the likes of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He knows you. That's what Edwards wanted to get across to children. Jesus loves you. He has that kind of heart and mercy for you. Don't we need to hear that no matter what age we're in at this stage in life? We are at Christ's mercy. We are, we are just right there at that table, basking in his glory, praising God for the mercy he's given us, right? Amen?